0: Major strikes today in Ukraine and officials say Russia is responsible. The lead starts right now. A city center in eastern Ukraine rocked by a missile strike. Why this target and why now? CNN is live on the scene. Plus contrasting claims. What persuaded Prigozhin, the Wagner boss, to stop his apparent revolt in Russia? The leader in Belarus has his version of events. While Vladimir Putin puts his own spin on what went down. CNN's Erin Burnett is leading our coverage live tonight in Dniprov in eastern Ukraine. Plus, Donald Trump lashing out one day after a CNN-exclusive audio of the former president talking about classified documents. Welcome to The Lead, everyone. I'm Bianna Gulodryga in New York. In for Jake Tapper, we start with our world lead and breaking news from eastern Ukraine. At least two massive Russian strikes in the Kramatorsk region tonight, according to officials there. One in a busy restaurant area where at least three people were killed, including a child. An eyewitness tells CNN's team on the ground they've seen up to a dozen people pulled from the rubble this after days of turmoil inside of russia following an attempted armed rebellion by the mercenary wagner group led by Yevgeny prigozhin that sent shock waves through the kremlin and revealed cracks in putin's two-decade-long grip on power we have reporters throughout ukraine and my co-anchor tonight aaron burnett is near the front lines in dnipro and aaron the strikes in kramatorsk are a brutal reminder that despite whatever unrest is happening inside of russia Putin's deadly and indiscriminate war on Ukraine
1: continues. And that's right, Bianna, and you know, we understand in Kramatorsk, there had been a a pizza party, large pizza party, children, lots of children involved, a children's party. And let's get straight to CNN senior international correspondent, Ben Wiedemann. He's at the scene of the strike, uh, seeing what's happening as they're trying to pull bodies from the rubble. And Ben, what are you seeing?
2: Well, Aaron, actually, we've been pulled back because about 45 minutes ago, there was fear that there was an airstrike coming. So briefly, uh, they stopped the rescue efforts and, uh, moved everybody away. But what I can tell you is that at 7.32 in the evening here, uh, there was this strike on the, in the area of the RIA restaurant, very popular with soldiers. Uh, and civilians. We spoke to somebody who was actually in the restaurant at the time. He said it was crammed with people, dozens of people, and that it was utter pandemonium. Okay, here, the air raid siren has gone off again. Now, we were able to get pretty much inside the restaurant. What we saw was just utter destruction. There were slabs of concrete. There were dozens of Rescue workers just digging in the rubble trying to find uh, more people more bodies Our producer Costa actually was there when they pulled out a body now according to the police The latest numbers are four dead including one child and 42 Injured now I can actually hear some of the work going on behind me So it seems that that has resumed but uh... This isn't the first time that this sort of catastrophe happens in Kramatorsk. We're not really very far from the front lines. Bakhmut is just an hour away from here by car. And this is also the first anniversary today of a strike on a shopping mall in central Ukraine that killed 22 people, which really underscores uh, that... Uh, these strikes are oftentimes random they seem designed uh, to terrorize the civilian population and punish the soldiers uh, in this war effort. so yes it's it's uh, just yet another example of the Russian tactic of just seemingly randomly striking targets across this country. Aaron
1: Ben, so so random and yet with such deadly, precision at the same time with so many human lives lost uh, is they're trying to still pull people out of the rubble. We don't even have any idea, of course, Biana, how bad this will be, although we do understand that soldiers, families, lots of children inside there. And, and all of this coming, these air raid sirens, we heard them here uh, in Dnipro about an hour or so ago as well uh, across the country tonight comes as everyone's trying to figure out the reprisals that Vladimir Putin will level because of uh, what happened uh, with Evgeny Prigozhin. And the Belarusian leader, Alexander Lukashenko, is claiming that Prigozhin, the Wagner boss and mutiny leader, has landed in Belarus for his exile. And now we actually have some new and exclusive uh, satellite images. CNN reporting showing two planes linked to Prigozhin have been spotted in satellite images at a Belarusian airbase outside of the capital of Minsk. But as our own Nick Payton Walsh reports. even though Purgosin does seem, and I emphasize seem, because we don't know if he was on those planes, one of those planes, seems to be outside of Russia, Putin's troubles are not over.
3: President Putin's used to conjuring his own reality on state TV. But it was not clear during an array of post-rebellion pomp on Tuesday who is left buying it. His top brass, whose removal it was all about, still remarkably there too, as Putin surreally thanked land forces who barely intervened as Wagner advanced on Moscow at the weekend
4: for saving Russia. You defended the Constitution. You saved our people, our homeland virtually. You stopped a civil war.
3: And he bizarrely later told soldiers the Russian state, him in effect, had paid a billion dollars to the rebellious Wagner Group as it fought in Ukraine over the
4: past year. I want everyone to know about this. The maintenance of the entire Wagner Group was fully provided for by the state. We fully funded this group from the Ministry of Defence and from the state budget.
3: It was a strange self-own, a bid to paint former confidant-turned-insurrectionist Yevgeny Prigozhin, last seen here in Rostov on Saturday as a corrupt profiteer. But the new spin is too late, as Prigozhin, no longer the target of Russian prosecutors, Tuesday appeared to have fled to Belarus, according to its president Alexander Lukashenko, who relished in colourfully describing a starkly contrasting weekend to Putin, in which he persuaded Prigozhin in a phone call to stop his tanks moving on Putin.
5: There was cursing.
6: Yevgeny
5: was in complete euphoria. There were 10 times more expletives than normal words. I said, Putin will not talk to you due to the situation. He was silent and then said, but we want justice and we'll go to Moscow.
6: I said, halfway,
5: you will be just crushed like a bug. Lukashenko said
3: later Saturday, Prigozhin agreed to stop his advance in return for his offer of safety in Belarus, and added Wagner would be useful in Belarusian ranks. Putin's headache now slightly further away, but still pounding. A drama miles from the war's grind, where Ukraine's President Zelensky has hailed advances in all directions, but where a breakthrough is lacking. Russian troops targeted here, outside Bakhmut, usually don't have phones and may not have learned yet of Wagner's revolt. What morale will be left to shatter when they do? I think what's most staggering about the last four days is Evgeny Prigozhin, if indeed he is in Belarus, like Lukashenko says, is still a free man. He has essentially driven tanks on Moscow and then changed his mind, yet is not in prison, and is indeed, it appears, from Russian prosecutors, going to have those charges essentially dropped against him. What of him now? Does Wagner reconstitute in Belarus? Does it become an asset for Lukashenko? A thorn in Lukashenko's side? Try and get back in Putin's favour? I think the last option there, pretty remote, but Prigozhin is still a free man, and that makes Putin look weaker than ever. Erin? Yeah.
1: Nick, thanks so much. And, you know, it's, it's interesting, actually, talking to the foreign minister of Ukraine today, uh, Minister Kuleba, Nick, he was saying, you know, it, it, pointing to exactly what you just said, that because Prigozhin, he marches on Moscow, right, he, he sort of stops by his own choice. And what does Putin do? Putin lets him go. Right. And the whole point is Ukraine is the world needs to stop being afraid of a nuclear escalation by Putin, because when you challenge him, when you are strong against him, as Prigozhin was, look what he did with Prigozhin. At least for now, it appears that he backed down and looked weaker. And of course, that's that's what they want to tell the world to do. Right. When it comes to Putin's threats of escalation or nuclear attack, whether it be at the Zaporizhia nuclear plant here or tactical nukes.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, essentially, I think there is a, a change in assessment of Putin as being this indomitable five-dimensional chess player who was always one step ahead of his opponents, able to act as the puppet master of everybody. This weekend showed, frankly, that he didn't even want to be in public to show that he was in charge of Russia after the deal was struck by Lukashenko, a man who he considers to be a subordinate, who he treats in contempt. He didn't even really want to be seen much to remind everybody who was still in control. And it's only today that we had this elaborate show of him in front of soldiers reminding everybody who was in charge. He's never been weaker before. That could benefit Ukraine, or if he proves to be irrational finally, Mm. it could also be very dangerous. Erin?
1: All right, Nick, thank you very much. As Nick points out, we did, you know, see Putin today, but it was with troops, finally, four days uh, after the attempted rebellion by Prigozhin, not walking the streets, you know, as we remember... President Zelensky so famously did uh, after the invasion of Kyiv. A uh, very different profile. Well, we're joined now by Alexander Vindman in Kyiv. He is a retired U.S. Army lieutenant colonel He was born in Soviet, then Soviet Ukraine, who found himself at the center of former President Trump's first impeachment. Also with me, Nina Khrushcheva. She is in Moscow tonight, a professor of international affairs and the great granddaughter of Nikita Khrushchev, of course, the Soviet Union's leader during the Cuban Missile Crisis. So glad to have both of you uh, with me. Colonel, let me just start with you. You're in Kyiv tonight. Um, You know, air raid sirens uh, in many places across the country uh, here tonight and that strike in Kramatorsk, a a very full pizza restaurant. We understand many children there. Uh, We know someone who was at that restaurant talking about just the blood and the the body parts and how horrible it was at that moment. Do you think this strike is a direct result uh, of Putin lashing out from this weekend's events?
7: I think there's probably some loose connection. I think Putin probably directed his military to uh, respond to Ukraine. And the only way that Russia has the ability to do that is through a terror campaign. So you'll see these missile barrages, these uh, you know, mass drone strikes to inflict casualties uh, because Putin's, uh, you know, Putin's, Putin demands blood uh, and so in response to kind of any of these types of slights. Which is surprising and shocking that, you know, we see P- uh, Pogosin, on the other hand, walking away, kind of living after launching a what amounted to almost a successful coup, only in that he ma- could have made it to, to Moscow and uh, you know, spilled blood in Moscow. So it's a, a strange turn of events. The whole series of days has been bizarre. Uh, people are still trying to figure it out. But yes, this is a, this is in part one of the one of the steps that mm-hmm. Putin and his regime is taking, just uh, rain terror on Ukraine.
1: Nina, you're actually in Moscow tonight, and you know as you hear, Colonel Vindman talking about right? Putin's military was nowhere to be seen. essentially, as Wagner troops marched on marched on Moscow, we finally today saw Putin, you know well yesterday we saw him with that in that bland wooden room uh, speaking briefly, right? Uh, but today with troops but not, not with people, not out. Um, what's the feeling you're getting on the streets of Moscow now?
6: Oh, thank you. Uh, well, Putin wouldn't be with people in the streets. That's really not his style. He doesn't do that. In fact, uh, what you were discussing earlier, that Putin looks weaker than ever, I actually disagree with that because, um, yes, it was a... It was a march for justice, as Prigozhin called it. It was averted um, one way or another. And so Putin uh, lives on to fight another day. And so he stays in the office. So, in this sense, he actually is successful enough. And he got Lukashenko to do his bidding. And now we see that Lukashenko is telling all sorts of stories of how he is the one in charge. But ultimately, all of this in service to putin so i would disagree that i mean it this is a weak state but and putin does got weakened but he's absolutely not uh not on the ground and that's what i am seeing around moscow is that the, the coup was sort of a weird thing but uh i didn't see at least in moscow there's really no takers for prigozhin at all
1: Yes. Well, that and that's an interesting point. Um, Colonel Vinman. what's interesting also as part of this, as uh, Nick was describing, Alexander Lukashenko, the leader of Belarus, right, being the one who, who supposedly negotiated this deal between Putin and Prigozhin, um, he's very much seen as a puppet of Putin, right? But he comes out and says he got Prigozhin on the phone when Putin wasn't able to. He negotiated, quote, six or seven rounds before Prigozhin finally agreed to stop. Now, we don't know how much of this is hyperbole or exaggeration, but Lukashenko bragging like this certainly doesn't... Make Putin look good; it makes him look, uh, you know, more impotent in all of this. What does it reveal anything to you?
7: It, it does. I think it, it kind of gives you uh, some insight into how other authoritarian uh, leaders around the world likely perceive Putin. Uh, so he's supposed to be the ultimate strongman. He's the he's the the kind of um, you know the pedestal uh, for the the way a strongman behaves, the way he governs, the way he uh, maintains. Uh, strict discipline over his elites. Clearly, that's not the case. Uh, he was responsible in part, in, in huge part, for this insurrection occurring in the first place by letting these factional infights uh, between the Ministry of Defense and, and Pergozin get way out of hand. He could have prevented this months ago. He just kind of uh, uh, stayed aside. So that was ineffective. And now, uh, he on the brink of a coup, he had to, to lure in a subordinate like Lukashenko to kind of negotiate, and in the way Lukashenko spoke about it, it was really quite demeaning. He basically said, "Well, don't worry about it, Vladimir. I'll take care of it." You know, he basically said, uh, "You know." Basically, Putin came hand in glove to to look for help.
1: All right, Nina Khrushcheva, Alexander Vinman, thank you both very much. And coming up here from Eastern Ukraine, why Ukrainian troops? would have benefited if Prigozhin's power grab had just lasted 48 hours longer, just 48 hours. My exclusive interview with the Ukrainian foreign minister, Dmitry Kuleva, is next. Biana? Yeah, he had a lot to say. Looking forward to hearing from him again.
0: Aaron, also ahead here in the U.S., new reaction today from Donald Trump after the CNN exclusively obtained audio of him describing the very thing that he publicly
1: denied. And we're back with our world lead in Dnipro, Ukraine tonight, in eastern Ukraine, as ripples of this weekend's attempted armed insurrection in Russia expand. Ukraine right now is grappling with another devastating, deadly Russian strike in a densely populated area, center of a city, civilian populated restaurant, as the war battered country presses on with its counteroffensive. Earlier today, I spoke with the Ukrainian foreign minister, Dmitry Kuleba, about that fight. And here is a part of our conversation. Has the rebellion in Russia, as you've seen over just these past few days, and I know it's sort of still the fog and chaos of it, but has it changed anything on the front lines? I I spoke to a, a, a drone operator, Ukrainian drone operator, he's operating near Bakhmut, and he was saying on Saturday they felt a palpable panic from the Russians, but that it then subsequently returned to what he said would be quote unquote normal in terms of their behavior.
3: If this mutiny had lasted for 48 hours more, I'm pretty certain we would have felt a a demoralizing impact uh, on the uh, Russian forces fighting in the south and east of Ukraine. Uh, Unfortunately, Prigozhin gave up too quickly, so there was no time for this... um, this destabil- demoralizing effect uh, to uh, penetrate Russian trenches, uh, but nevertheless, you know, this was not the factor that our con- our forces were counting on. Yeah. it was like a force majeure, so sure. it doesn't change anything in our plans, mm-hmm. and we can t- as we continue our counteroffensive.
1: The Ukrainian foreign minister said much more about the revolt in Russia, who's in charge, what it means for Putin and for the war here in Ukraine. Watch more of my interview tonight. It'll be out front tonight at 7 Eastern right here on CNN. And of course, let's head back to Biana in New York.
0: Yeah, really interesting conversation in coming as the U.S. and Western allies have pledged additional funding and resources uh, for Ukraine as they continue this counteroffensive. Erin, thank you so much. We'll see more of you tonight. Well, Donald Trump says he did nothing wrong, and he's sticking to that story even after CNN obtained the stunning recording of him waving around classified documents. We'll have more on the fallout up next. We're back with our Law and Justice lead. This afternoon, Donald Trump responded to the recording you heard first on CNN of the former president discussing having secret documents that he did not declassify. Trump continues to insist that he, quote, did nothing wrong, as CNN's Paula Reed reports. You,
8: you For the first time, the public is hearing former President Trump, in his own words, claiming to have secret documents months after leaving the White House.
0: I have a big pile of papers. This thing just
8: came up. Look. CNN exclusively obtained the bombshell recording of Trump seemingly rustling through papers and showing off a secret military document... During an interview at his New Jersey golf club in the summer of 2021, his own staffers recording the conversation at his request, and still he tells the room, yeah. see, "As
2: president, I could have done less. Now no, I can't. You know, but this is." Yeah, now, now we have a problem.
8: Isn't that interesting? Trump You're giving right, Fox right. News this explanation Tuesday.
5: What did I say wrong in those recordings? I didn't even see the recording. All I know is I did nothing wrong. We had a lot of papers, a lot of papers stacked up.
8: In the recording, Trump refers to a classified, proposed military attack plan against Iran. These are the (laughs) papers. This was done by the military, given to me. That line, these are the papers, coming to light for the first time.
5: We have one set of laws in this country, and they apply to everyone.
8: Special (laughs) Counsel Jack Smith, who is prosecuting Trump in the classified documents and obstruction case cited the tape in his indictment, but left out that key line and the section where Trump mocks former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton's use of a private email server. Look, look
5: at this, you and
8: Hillary would print
5: that out all the time. You know. or she'd all- send it to <laughs> yeah. Anthony
8: Weiner. The tone throughout is casual, even jovial, when talking about national defense secrets, something that may not play well before a jury. Isn't that
2: amazing? This totally wins my case, you know, Mm -hmm. except it is like highly controversial. (laughs) The
8: tape ending with Trump ordering some sodas. Now you believe me?
9: No, I
1: believe (laughs)
9: It's
5: incredible, right? No. Hey, bring some, uh, bring some cokes in,
3: please.
8: The Trump campaign says the audio tape provides context proving, once again, President Trump did nothing wrong at all. Trump's close aide and co-defendant in this case, Walt Nata, was expected to be arraigned in Miami federal court today, but he didn't make it to the courthouse due to flight delays. His hearing has been rescheduled for next week, but, Biana, he still needs to find a Florida-based attorney.
0: We know he wasn't the only one experiencing flight delays in the country today. Uh, Paula Reed, thank you. I want to bring in CNN political director David Chalian and former federal prosecutor Ellie Honig. Good to see you both. So, Ellie, if you were hypothetically trying this case as a prosecutor, how much emphasis would you put on this tape?
5: This would be the centerpiece of my case, Biana. If I had to address a jury tomorrow and give an opening, I might start with these words. This is secret information. Look at this. And the beauty of it is in those seven words, That tells the jury everything they need to know. And the best part of it is that's not even my words as a a hypothetical prosecutor. Those are Donald Trump's words. And the jury's going to hear them on tape coming out of Donald Trump's mouth because it tells you all you need to know. He knew he had those documents. He knew the information was sensitive and he showed it to other people. So to me, this is the best evidence a prosecution could hope for. And if I was building a case, I would build it around this recording.
0: And it is notable that these recordings, according to Paula's reporting, came at his own request. So, David, we heard Trump and his allies claiming that this tape somehow exonerates Trump. Do you think there's anything at this point, any specific piece of evidence, any alleged crime that could change that narrative for Trump supporters?
10: Well, I do think uh, we've seen some signs of concern among Republicans broadly about uh, Donald Trump's continued baggage, right? I mean, I, I don't know what they're talking about, how this exonerates him. I don't see any uh, ability here uh, for this piece of evidence to be uh, exculpatory in some way. Uh, but we do know that when you look at the Repo- Republican primary Voter universe largely, Biana, the party's roughly split. Split in terms of thinking Donald Trump would be his, its best foot forward to to win the twenty twenty four election. Half the party thinks somebody not named Donald Trump would be the best foot forward for the party uh, to win in in twenty twenty four. I do think what is important here, of course, is that we have to hold two things can be true at the same time. This can be brazen, reckless, even potentially criminal on Donald Trump's behalf uh, in terms of what he did with the state security secrets here. And yet, it may not be dispositive for Republican primary voters.
0: And Ellie, we heard a bit there from Paula at the end that Trump's aide, Walt Nada was supposed to be in court today. Uh, He missed his appearance because of flight delays, but he, he also doesn't have local representation yet. How important is it, do you think, for prosecutors to to see if he could possibly flip uh, against Trump? Well, first of all,
5: can we get this guy arraigned already? This is now twice we've tried. This is the most basic starting line procedure. They've tried twice, and the first time NADA didn't have the right lawyer this time. A lot of people got caught up in flight delays, but he knew about this date for many, many days counting already. He will presumably at some point appear in court and be arraigned. Uh, If I'm DOJ, I'm trying to flip NADA. Apparently they already have. But I don't think I need him. Right. Usually the decision whether to flip is based on loyalty. And if you look at the case here, NADA has been by Trump's side throughout it all. His lawyers being paid for by a Trump affiliated entity. And he's not flipped so far. So the thing is, if I'm DOJ here looking at the indictment, looking at the evidence, including the recording we just talked about, I don't need him. I have his Mm -hmm. texts. I have the tapes. And you can build a plenty powerful case without a cooperating witness. I think DOJ has that ability now.
0: So the legal case we know, David, it appears to be quite damning. There is a lot of evidence. But we also know that Republican voters, they weren't phased much following the New York indictment over hush money payments. Some suggested that this could be a bigger deal. Do you have any sense of how much they actually care about this issue at all over classified documents?
10: I mean, we do know that overall the public does see politics at role, uh, at, uh, playing a role in this case, and we see that overwhelmingly among Republicans. Uh, but I think as time goes on here, we will start getting our answers as the nomination season plays out in conjunction with the court calendar.
0: All right, David, Ellie, thank you so much as always. Great to see you. And coming up, the Supreme Court decision that stopped a political strategy designed to give state lawmakers total control of elections. In our law and justice lead, the Supreme Court today rejected a controversial theory that would have fundamentally changed federal elections in the U.S. The theory would have given state legislatures largely unchecked power to set rules for federal elections and draw congressional maps warped by gerrymandering. CNN's Jessica Schneider dove into the Supreme Court decision that settles a case that former President Obama warned had the potential to dismantle our system of checks and balances. The Supreme Court rejecting an obscure legal theory that had
9: the potential to upend federal elections. The justices were warned during arguments in December that if the court adopted the independent state legislature theory, it could create election chaos.
2: The blast radius from their theory would sow elections chaos, forcing a confusing two-track system with one set of rules for federal elections and another for state ones.
9: But Chief Justice John Roberts, writing the opinion in the 6-3 decision, upheld the authority of state courts to overrule election maps, laws, and rules put into effect by state lawmakers. Backers of former President Trump pushed the conflicting independent state legislature theory after the 2020 election, claiming that because the elections clause of the U.S. Constitution says the legislature controls the times, places, and manner of holding elections, state courts had no authority to overrule state lawmakers. But now the U.S. High Court has rejected that argument, spelling out how courts have throughout history been the final arbiters enforcing state and federal constitutions. The chief justice writing, the elections clause does not insulate state legislatures from the ordinary exercise of state judicial review.
4: We beat back the most serious legal threat our democracy has ever faced with today's ruling in Moore v. Harper.
9: Voting rights advocates praised the decision, with former President Barack Obama even weighing in, writing, This ruling is a resounding rejection of the far-right theory that has been peddled by election deniers and extremists seeking to undermine our democracy. The decision stemmed from a voting map dispute in North Carolina, where the state's Supreme Court initially struck down a congressional map drawn by Republicans, who then appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, saying their state's highest court had no right to step in. But while this case was ongoing, the partisan balance of the North Carolina Supreme Court changed. And they ruled in late April that state courts have no role to play when it comes to policing election maps.
2: So we know our General Assembly is about to pass a bunch of ugly, gerrymandered maps that are going to make it hard on
11: voters.
9: And North Carolina's Attorney General warns the U.S. Supreme Court's decision might not mean the end for state legislatures trying to meddle in federal elections.
11: When
2: people have power... They want to try to grab more power. And we see that with state legislatures across this country.
9: Now, Chief Justice John Roberts did write in the opinion today that although state courts can overrule state legislatures, they don't have, quote, free reign. So, Biana, this does potentially leave the door open to future litigation key as we move into the 2024 election cycle. Biana.
0: Fascinating. Uh, Jessica Schneider, thank you. Well, the answer today from Speaker Kevin McCarthy to one question that now has Trump allies outraged. That's next. In our 2024 lead dueling campaign events in New Hampshire today by Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis, both making stops only 42 miles apart and striking remarkably different tones when it came to criticizing each other. Trump slamming Ron DeSantis by name several times.
5: The at nineteen percent. He's not. He's heading. <laughs> Somebody
0: said, "How come you only attack him?" I said, "Because he's in second
5: place." But soon, I don't think he'll be in second place. DeSantis at sixteen. That's an abbreviation for De sanctimonious. But Ron was actually strongly close. Remember, he closed the beaches, closed the highways. You know, he loved Fauci at the beginning. He thought he was great.
0: But DeSantis only mentioned Trump by name when offering him credit. Watch.
7: We can't underwrite security for all of Europe uh, while they don't necessarily share our interests. So they need to do a lot more uh, and we need to insist on it. And I will give Trump credit for saying that in 2016 he was right.
0: CNN's Ashley Allison and Essie Cupp are here to talk about this and other developments today. So, Ashley, let's start with you. Can DeSantis effectively go up against Trump without directly attacking him, let's say, the way Chris Christie has been?
11: I don't think for the duration of the campaign, it's clear right now that DeSantis isn't going to necessarily call Trump out by name. But as we get closer to debates and certainly towards the end of the year, I think um, if he stays somewhat higher in the polls, higher than the other field of candidates in the Republican Party, he will need to start calling out his direct opponent. But right now he's just slow walking it. I don't think I, I don't necessarily agree with that strategy, but I think he is slow walking whether or not he wants to call out Trump by name.
0: Yeah, he seems really reluctant to do that up until this point. Essie, today Trump allies are reeling after Speaker McCarthy's comments on CNBC, and they were interesting. Take a listen.
5: It makes awesome. it complicated if, if he's got all these trials and, and, and all this stuff overhanging. It the... makes it complicated, also helps him when. But do you think he could win an election? Could he win an election? Can and, he and win get... that election? Yeah, he, can't you he election. can You think he can The question is, is he the strongest to win the election? I don't know that answer.
0: So, Essie, he, he sort of asked a question and then answered it. The, the interviewer didn't even ask, is yeah. he the strongest? Could this be the start of a feud, do you think, between McCarthy and Trump?
4: Oh, I I doubt it. Um no, I mean Trump is still in the lead and uh, you know, if if past his prologue, I think it's clear that Kevin McCarthy, the House, the RNC will continue to back him as long as he is um doing well in the polls. And Kevin McCarthy is half right. I think the indictments do help Donald Trump with the base. And so I think winning a nomination is real possible. But can he win an election like this? Can he win a general election? With all of this, the answer, I think, is very clearly no. Um, a majority of of voters uh, agree with all of these indictments and believe that Trump should be um, investigated for all of this stuff. So uh, we'll see. But I don't think Kevin McCarthy is really going to take a meaningful swing at Trump anytime soon.
0: Well, Ashley, this this is happening as sources close to Trump told CNN that that he believes that he helped secure the speakership for McCarthy. And now Trump allies are not happy about what we just heard from him. This isn't the first time that Trump feels slighted by something that he uh, some somebody else has said about him when he says that he takes credit for that person's success. Could these comments hurt McCarthy politically, do you think?
11: I think that is the furthest Kevin McCarthy is going to go in terms of taking a jab at Donald Trump. Uh I unfortunately think it's true that Trump did help McCarthy secure his speakership. And so he knows that he has some people uh McCarthy has some people in his caucus that if Donald Trump gets too upset with him that he could easily call and they could try and call McCarthy's speakership into question. So McCarthy is playing it. You know, I think I just heard recently also that he kind of walked those comments back saying, oh, he's stronger than he ever has been stronger even in 2016 right now, as McCarthy is saying about Trump. So he's not going to go too far out and walking the plank against Donald Trump, um, not until it's very clear Hmm. that somebody else is going to get the Republican nomination.
0: SC, comments from another Republican candidate uh, raised eyebrows today. Miami Mayor Francis Suarez was on the Hugh Hewitt show. And here's what happened when he was asked about the Uyghurs, a minority group that the U.N. has accused China of committing genocide on.
5: Will you be talking about the Uyghurs in your campaign? The what? The Uyghurs. What's a Uyghur? Okay, we'll come back to that. You
4: gave me homework, uh, Hugh. I'll, I'll look at what, uh, what was it? What, did you call it a Weeble?
5: The Uyghurs. <laughs> oh you really I'm need to know about it. the Uyghurs, Mayor. I you got to talk about I it will every know. day.
11: I will, okay, I will. I will talk about. I will. Forward, I will search Uyghurs. I'm. I'm a good learner. I'm a fast learner.
0: So after that made headlines, Essie Mayor Francis Suarez said in a statement to CNN in part, I am well aware of the suffering of the Uyghurs in China. I didn't recognize the pronunciation my friend Hugh Hewitt used. That is on me. You know, Essie, this wasn't an obscure gotcha question. It is a significant human rights issue involving arguably one of our largest adversaries, that is China. What do you make of his response and sort of the cleanup attempt afterward?
4: Yeah. And it's a very fair question. Hugh Hewitt tends to ask a lot of foreign policy questions and I think very important ones. And this isn't important just because of the humanitarian um, cost of of this and the crisis there. But, you know, this touches on trade and economic issues. So it's a big it's a big issue. Um, Listen, this was not a good look for anyone, but especially for someone whose rap Uh, as it were, is that he's really not prepared to be president, having been sort of this figurehead as the mayor of Miami. When that's, you know, the rap on you, this was probably the last thing you needed to be stumped on a foreign policy question and look very unprepared for a national stage.
0: Ashley, is this stumble recoverable in your view, especially given that he is not a candidate that many Americans are quite familiar with?
11: I mean, to be honest, the first time I saw Uyghurs spelled and then pronounced, I did not necessarily know the two were connected. And that was the excuse that um, the mayor gave that he, he knew he was familiar, but he didn't understand the pronunciation. But I'm also not running to be the president of the United States. So I don't think this is something that he will likely be able to recover from because he's already so um, not as well known nationally and We want people. We we don't want people to learn on the job as president of the United States. And so people should be able to run for office, but they also need to be prepared. And I think that this will show that the mayor just isn't ready for that type of role to be serve as our commander in chief.
0: All right, Ashley Allison, SC Cup. Thank you. Thanks. Sure. And coming up, can I buy a vowel? Wheel of Fortune takes a spin with a new host. But first, we're checking in with Wolf Blitzer for a look at what's coming up on the Situation Room. Wolf, as always, you have a jam-packed show.
10: We certainly do, uh, Vienna. We have two very big guests on two of the day's top stories coming up in the Situation Room. I'll discuss the fallout from the mutiny in Russia with retired U.S. General David Petraeus. He's the former CIA director, the former commander of the U.S. military's Central Command. We'll also be joined by veteran journalist Bob Woodward I'll get his reaction to those audio tapes of Donald Trump obtained exclusively by CNN in which the former president talks about classified documents. It's all coming up right here in the Situation Room right at the top of the hour.
0: In our pop lead, Ryan Seacrest has been named the new host of Wheel of Fortune, succeeding longtime host Pat Sajak. The announcement comes just two weeks after Sajak announced plans to retire from the hit game show after more than 40 years. Seacrest left his talk show live with Kelly and Ryan in April after six seasons, saying he wanted to focus on American Idol and other projects. In a statement, Seacrest said, I'm truly humbled to be stepping into the footsteps of the legendary Pat Sajak. I can't wait to continue the tradition of spinning the wheel and working alongside the great Vanna White. Congratulations to Ryan. And don't miss tonight my colleague Aaron Burnett's full interview with the Ukrainian foreign minister about that revolt in Russia and what it means for the war in Ukraine. That is tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern right here on CNN. Thank you so much for watching. I'm Bianca Golodryga in for Jake Tapper. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room.